Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, A while back, I was wishing I had an episode to work on that was something along the lines of the Piltdown Man. The Piltdown Man was a case of scientific fraud. It was a skull that was purportedly fossil evidence of an evolutionary missing link, but really, it was a total fabrication. It threw a wrench into the study of human evolution, but researching that one involved reading a lot of old science writing in which people were very authoritatively saying stuff that was totally wrong. And I just, I enjoyed that research process. I even talk in the episode about how I enjoyed that process. Thanks to a totally random Jeopardy rerun that I saw while I was visiting my parents, I had an an idea for an episode that's almost the opposite of the Piltdown Man because it's about how when European naturalists saw a platypus for the first time, it was so bizarre to them that they thought it was fake. (laughs) And they argued about how to classify the platypus in the taxonomy of animals for almost a century. This was happening in tandem with similar discussions about another Australian mammal, which is the echidna or spiny anteater. Uh, And it was part of just discussions of the scientific taxonomy in general. That's what we're going to talk about today. And just as a heads up, European research into the anatomy and morphology of these animals included shooting a lot of them. Just be aware. So the platypus is a mammal native to eastern Australia, Tasmania, and the surrounding islands. They're fairly unique in the animal world, and if you've never seen one, but you have seen lots of more typical mammals, they can seem incredibly weird. Yeah, if if your animal experience with mammals is like bears and cats and dogs, uh, you look at a platypus and you're like, what is this? Yeah, I'll tell a story in our behind-the-scenes about the first time I saw a platypus, or an image of a platypus, I should say. Okay. They have fur like a mammal, but a bill that looks like it belongs on a bird. Thus the name, duck-billed platypus. Although that bill is really a sensory organ that's a lot more flexible than a duck's bill. Males have spurs on their hind legs that are equipped with venom glands, something that's way more common among reptiles. Platypuses produce milk to feed their young, like other mammals do, but they also lay eggs, which is something the overwhelming majority of other mammals do not do. Uh, It took quite a while for European naturalists to figure out the whole milk production and egg-laying situation, which is going to be a big part of this episode. But even without those details, the platypus just seemed bizarre. In 1793, British Royal Navy officer John Hunter, who would later become governor of New South Wales Colony, wrote that the platypus had come to be thanks to, quote, a promiscuous intercourse between the different sexes of all these different animals. In other words, lots of different animals had mated with one another, and the platypus was the result. That sounds kind of kooky today, uh, but this was not just a random colonial official's Rambling on the subject, Hunter was a naturalist himself. He was a member of the Royal Society. I mean, I could see where there's no other explanation. <laughs> That's <laughs> that probably might... my child logic for where such animals came from. Right, that would lead you to that sort of conclusion. But of course, Australia's first peoples have known about these animals for thousands of years. 
The platypus has a role in the Aboriginal religious and cultural knowledge that early anthropologists described as the dreaming or the dream time. These stories and traditions from all across the continent are deeply sacred to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, so they aren't really ours to share on the podcast. But what we do want to stress here is that a lot of what Europeans were arguing about and trying to prove in the 19th century was already commonly known among many Aboriginal communities. Scientists simultaneously relied on Aboriginal people to help them find platypuses to study and also disregarded their knowledge about their physiology. One of the reasons why the platypus was so baffling to Europeans in the 19th century was that naturalists and anatomists and other such specialists had been methodically cataloging and categorizing life on Earth, starting primarily with Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus in his Systema Naturae, or System of Nature, in 1735. Linnaeus created a taxonomy that arranged life into a hierarchy, and this was a hierarchy that was based on observable characteristics and traits. And this was not the world's first attempt to classify and categorize life on Earth by any means. There's evidence of classification systems in ancient Chinese and Egyptian texts, and Aristotle and his contemporaries created basic taxonomies around the 3rd and 4th centuries BCE. But Linnaeus established a system that's at the heart of what's still used today. It initially described three kingdoms, animal, vegetable, and mineral, with life in the plant and animal kingdoms arranged by class, order, genus, species, and variety. And as I said earlier, there was a hierarchy to all of this. Animals were of the highest rank, and then plants, and then minerals. This idea of a hierarchy then carried through each of the kingdoms. So, for example, mammals were up at the top of the animals. Humans were up at the top of the mammals. These hierarchical ideas also went on to form the basis of scientific racism when they were used to categorize groups of people from different parts of the world. In the 10th edition of Systema Naturae, Linnaeus divided the animal world into mammalia, or mammals, aves, or birds, amphibia, or amphibians, which also included reptiles, Pisces, or fish, insecta, or insects, and vermes, which translates to worms, but was kind of a catch-all for invertebrate animals that also didn't have an exoskeleton. Warm-blooded animals whose hearts had two atria and two ventricles were mammals if they gave birth to live young, and birds if they lay eggs. Cold-blooded animals whose hearts had one atrium and one ventricle were amphibians if they breathed through lungs, and fish if they breathed through gills. As he described each class in more detail, Linnaeus also noted that mammals fed their young through lactiferous teats. The Latin word mamma, or breast, is the root of the word mammal, so this all suggests that in Linnaeus's mind, the key features of mammals, what was worth naming them after, was milk production in females. Generally speaking, today's scientific taxonomy has more categories at every level and more precise methods for determining what goes where than Linnaeus's original work did. But this progression has been about more than just adding more specific and accurate factual details. Linnaeus and his contemporaries were also working from the idea that life was just as it had always been. The idea of evolution over time did not really enter into it for more than a century. 
Instead, Linnaeus framed his work as the categorization of God's creations as God had made them, with that work reflecting God's intentions. God had created all these plants and animals. They had been in their present state from the time of their creation. So by carefully examining them in Linnaeus's mind, you could find an observable, sortable pattern that demonstrated the will of God. So with that worldview in mind, when Europeans started encountering some of Australia's more unique wildlife, they really just did not know what to make of it. They defied categorization. You can see this confusion in one of the earliest written descriptions of the platypus in English, in an account of the English colony in New South Wales from its first settlement in 1788 to August 1801, with remarks on the dispositions, customs, manners, etc. of the native inhabitants of that country, to which are added some particulars of New Zealand. That was written by David Collins. Collins had been born in London and had arrived in Australia with the First Fleet in 1786, and he served as deputy judge advocate and eventually became lieutenant governor of New South Wales. He published this book in 1802, and in volume two, he listed a number of the different animals that had been observed in the colony's earliest years, before going on to say that more recently, quote, an amphibious animal of the mole species had been spotted on the shore of a lake. Collins went on to describe this animal, and that was accompanied by a drawing of it by Captain John Hunter, who by this point had become governor of New South Wales. Collins described the animal's small eyes and clawed webbed feet before saying, quote, The tail of this animal was thick, short, and very fat, but the most extraordinary circumstance observed in its structure was its having, instead of the mouth of an animal, the upper and lower mandibles of a duck. By these, it was enabled to supply itself with food, like that bird in muddy places, or on the banks of the lakes in which its webbed feet enabled it to swim. While on shore, its long and sharp claws were employed in burrowing, nature thus providing for it in its double or amphibious character. These little animals had been frequently noticed rising to the surface of the water and blowing like the turtle. So this was a mole and a duck and a turtle. It's just not what people were expecting when they showed up in (laughs) Australia. When naturalists in Europe received specimens of the platypus from Hunter, they were similarly perplexed by what they were looking at, and we will have more on that after a quick sponsor break. In 1798, Captain John Hunter sent a sketch of the water mole to the Literary and Philosophical Society in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, along with a preserved skin from one of the animals. This made its way to George Shaw, keeper of the Natural History Collections at the British Museum, which is now the Natural History Museum. But at first, Shaw was really not convinced that the skin that he had received was authentic. He very carefully started looking for signs of stitching, thinking that maybe had somebody had sewed a duck's bill onto a mole's body. Of course, he found no such evidence because it was a platypus. In 1799, Shaw teamed up with illustrator Frederick P. Nodder to produce The Naturalist's Miscellany, or Colored Figures of Natural Objects Drawn and Described Immediately from Nature. 
In this, Shaw wrote, quote, of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its conformation, exhibiting the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck engrafted on the head of a quadruped. So accurate is the similitude that at first view, it naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. The very epidermis, proportions, serratures, manner of opening, and other particulars is the beak of a shoveler or other broad-billed species of duck presenting themselves to the view. Nor is it without the most minute and rigid examination that we can persuade ourselves of its being the real beak or snout of a quadruped. This work goes on to say, quote, the body is depressed and has some resemblance to that of an otter in miniature, It is covered with a very thick, soft, and beaver-like fur and is of a moderately dark brown above, subferruginous white beneath. The head is flattish and rather small than large. The mouth or snout, as before observed, so exactly resembles that of some broad-billed species of duck that it might be mistaken for such. Shaw's doubts about what he's looking at are clear. He wrote, quote, On a subject so extraordinarily as the present, a degree of skepticism is not only pardonable, but laudable. And I ought perhaps to acknowledge that I almost doubt the testimony of my own eyes with respect to the structure of this animal's beak, yet must confess that I can perceive no appearance of any deceptive preparation. And the edges of the rictus, the insertion, etc., when tried by the test of maceration in water so as to render every part completely movable, seem perfectly natural. Nor can the most accurate examination of expert anatomists discover any deception in this particular. Shaw's work here predated David Collins's account of the English colony that we read from earlier. So this was the first thorough description of a platypus in English writing. Shaw also made the first attempt at giving this animal a name, which was platypus anatinus, which roughly translated to flat-footed duck. In 1800, Thomas Buick published a wood engraving of a platypus in the addenda to the fourth edition of A General History of Quadrupeds. He didn't name the animal, though. The engraving was just titled, An Amphibious Animal. In the addenda, he described both the amphibious animal and the wombat, which he calls a wombatch, with a CH ending. He says the aquatic animal, quote, seems to be an animal sui generis. It appears to possess a threefold nature, that of a fish, a bird, and a quadruped, and it is related to nothing that we have hitherto seen. We shall not attempt to arrange it in any of the useful modes of classification, but content ourselves with giving the description of both these curious animals as they have been transmitted to us. Sui generis means unique. In 1800, also, German physician and naturalist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach received a platypus skin from Hunter as well. He did his own study of it, And since he knew the name platypus had already been used on a type of beetle in 1793, he chose a different name, Ornithorhynchus paradoxus, or paradoxical bird snout. Eventually, this became Ornithorhynchus anatinus, combining the genus that Blumenbach had coined with the species from Shaw's name. Even though platypus was only briefly part of the proposed scientific name for this animal, it really stuck around as the common name. It outlasted lots of other names. It were things like water mole. They just don't have the same beautiful ring. 
These were by far not the only Europeans trying to study the platypus, something that was inherently challenging. Most of them could not personally make the trip to Australia, and they were practically on the other side of the planet from where platypuses were. So they had to rely on specimens sent by people living in Australia or procured by expeditions to the continent. In addition to the time and effort involved with that, specimens were often damaged in transit. The first skin that George Shaw received was pretty badly desiccated by the time he got it. Plus, the ships that carried these specimens to Europe typically traveled through waters that were also home to ships from Eastern Asia, where people were known to use taxidermy to create really convincing representations of hybrid animals. These included things like P.T. Barnum's Fiji mermaid, which was the head and torso of a monkey sewn to the tail of a fish and was reportedly purchased from Japanese sailors. The platypus itself already seemed like an improbable animal. So the existence of these taxidermy specimens added just a whole layer of complication and skepticism whenever people received new specimens. And when researchers did get their hands on a quality specimen to study, sometimes their findings just made things even more confusing. Outwardly, the platypus looked mostly like a mammal, except for that bird-like bill. But in 1802, British surgeon and Royal Society fellow Sir Everard Home dissected a platypus and found that the male had internal testes. That is a trait that's common to reptiles, not mammals. He also found that both males and females had a cloaca, that is, one orifice to the outside of the body for both digestive waste and for reproductive products. That was, again, something that had been found in birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish, but not in mammals. Not long after Home published work on these discoveries, Etienne Geoffroy de Saint-Hilaire of France coined the term monotreme to describe both the platypus and the echidna, deriving the name from Home's discovery of these animals having a cloaca. He suggested that the monotremes belonged in their own class, which he named monotremia. The presence of a cloaca raised lots of questions about platypus reproduction. Sir Joseph Banks tasked botanical collector George Cayley with going to Australia to look into these questions for both the platypus and the echidna. Cayley developed relationships with Aboriginal people to try to learn what they already knew. And in 1803, he wrote to Banks to say that one man had told him that the platypus laid eggs deep underground, but he had no physical evidence to prove it. And another pressing question was whether platypuses produced milk to feed their young. According to scientific understanding at the time, only mammals did that. But if platypuses laid eggs, as Cayley's source had reported, then according to the then-current understanding, no mammals did that. As a side note, there are some birds that produce a milk-like substance in a part of their esophagus known as the crop. It's known as crop milk or pigeon milk, and it plays a similar role to mammals' milk in nourishing young in the earliest days of their life. But that is not what we're talking about here. No, that is a different thing. Because of these questions about eggs and milk, though, various experts took the same approach as Etienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire had done, proposing that the platypus belonged in an entirely new category. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck of France proposed a new class called Protoheria in 1809 for both platypuses and echidnas, and French zoologist Johann Carl Wilhelm Illiger proposed one called Reptantia in 1811, 
1817, French scientist Georges Cuvier placed the platypus and the echidna in a new genus within the order Edentata, which was already home to anteaters and sloths. But Cuvier also noted there still needed to be an examination of these purported eggs. We have mostly been talking about people working from Europe, but researchers were at work in Australia as well. Botanical collector Sir John Jameson was born in Ireland and moved to Australia after inheriting property there in 1811. In 1816, he wrote of the platypus, quote, The female is oviparous and lives in burrows in the ground so that it is seldom seen either on shore or in the water. This was based on his own observations, and he was both respected and trained in medicine, but the scientific community still wanted proof. And that was challenging because those burrows, which did exist, were hard to find and hard to get into. In the 1820s, German anatomist Johann Meckel published four influential studies on the platypus. He described the venom gland in males and the mammary glands in females, although he didn't see any signs of those mammary glands being connected to nipples. Then in 1832, Lauderdale Maud of Scotland published two papers describing both the mammary glands and the milk production in a live platypus. British comparative anatomist Richard Owen, who would go on to coin the term dinosaur, confirmed the presence of mammary glands in his own paper in 1832, including noting that they seemed to be enlarged in specimens that also showed evidence of having recent activity in their ovaries. Then in 1833, biologist George Bennett discovered that platypus milk left the body through pores, sort of like sweat does, and then it collected on the abdomen for the young to drink. For some naturalists, this added up to conclusive evidence that the platypus lactated. And only mammals lactate, so platypuses were definitely mammals. And at least for some, that was also enough to answer the question of platypuses laid eggs. Because mammals do not lay eggs, so if platypuses were mammals, they did not lay eggs. But others, including Etienne Joffre, concluded that Meckel and Maud had to be mistaken. Maybe those glands were producing some kind of skin lubricant rather than milk. This was kind of the same logic, only in reverse. Joffre had concluded that platypuses lay eggs, and that meant that they simply could not produce milk. It was impossible. <laughs> Your if-then statements are all messy. <laughs> This led to a lot of division and dispute among naturalists, as various men who had published work on platypuses tried to defend their reputations in the face of other seemingly contradictory work. And of course, most of this was ignoring the observations of Aboriginal people, and at this point, some European colonists who reported that platypuses definitely laid eggs. To be clear, this testimony was not always consistent. There were language and cultural barriers at work, among other things. But overall, besides just wanting physical evidence as proof, the scientific community was generally dismissive of anything Aboriginal people reported. Charles Darwin stopped in Sydney in 1836 at the end of his voyage aboard the Beagle. While in Australia, he saw platypuses for himself, including one that had been shot by a member of his expedition. And in the years that followed, platypuses came up in his letters to his colleagues as he was sort of thinking through his ideas on natural selection. 
Darwin later used the platypus as an example in On the Origin of Species in 1859 in a discussion of how animals' traits influenced how people classified them, even if those traits were not necessarily the most important ones. Quote, if the ornithorhynchus had been covered with feathers instead of hair, this external and trifling character would, I think, have been considered by naturalists as important an aid in determining the degree of affinity of this strange creature to birds and reptiles as an approach in structure in any one internal and important organ. The work of Darwin and his successors would eventually put the platypus in context, based on how it had evolved over time and how that was related to the evolution of other animals. But in 1836, when he was in Sydney, there were still far more questions than answers. And we'll talk more about that after we pause for a sponsor break. As we said earlier, some 19th century researchers saw lactation and egg laying as mutually exclusive. Animals simply could not do both of those things. But for others, establishing that the platypus did lactate, that didn't rule out egg laying. Instead, it made this an even more important question to definitively answer. But eyewitness testimony of platypuses with eggs was not enough, because like, what if those were some other animal's eggs? and the platypus just happened to be near them. I mean, that's a, sure, that could happen. Sometimes people found egg fragments in platypus burrows, but that also wasn't conclusive because, theoretically, a platypus might eat eggs. Those could be the remnants of its food. So researchers wanted to find a pregnant platypus or one in the process of laying an egg or an egg that contained what was clearly a developing platypus embryo. Researchers had already killed a lot of platypuses for research in the first decades of the 19th century, but attempts to meet these specific criteria led them to kill a lot more. Yeah, and it was more specifically destructive because they were specifically looking for females. We mentioned earlier that cleverly made East Asian taxidermy specimens had led to some skepticism about whether platypus specimens were genuine. And when it came to this question of whether platypuses lay eggs, incorrect egg specimens had the same effect. Both Aboriginal people and colonists submitted samples that were purportedly platypus eggs, but they turned out to belong to completely different animals, including tortoises, lizards, and snakes. It's really not clear whether any of this was intentional or just a case of mistaken identity. Also, the question wasn't just, do platypuses lay eggs or do they give birth to live young? Some animals are ovoviviparous, meaning they produce eggs, but the eggs develop inside the mother's body, either hatching inside the body or immediately after the egg is laid. So did the platypus give birth to live young that had been nourished through a placenta, like a mammal? Or did the platypus produce eggs? And if eggs were involved, Did they develop and hatch inside or outside the body? Past podcast subject Jules Verreau, who's going to be an upcoming Saturday classic, spent 15 months in Tasmania, much of that time studying platypuses. Based on this research, he concluded that the platypus was ovoviviparous in 1847. 
He also wrote, quote, the ornithorhynchus is an animal bizarre of structure and offers numerous analogies with a host of different species and even classes. In its external form, it resembles in some degree the mole as to its body, the beaver as to its tail, and the duck as to its beak. Its internal structure, more astonishing still, resembles that of certain reptiles and appears to form a link between mammals and lizards. Richard Owen directed George Bennett of the Australian Museum to hunt for female platypuses, either pregnant or with eggs. Bennett had previously dissected female platypuses and found eggs in their uteruses, but none of those eggs contained any embryos, so they didn't offer any insight into whether the young might hatch from eggs or be born alive. But Bennett was concerned about this idea, fearing for the future of the species if researchers indiscriminately killed females to try to answer this egg question. Bennett was also concerned about the killing of Australian animals more generally. In 1860, he wrote, Gatherings of a naturalist in Australasia being observations principally on the animal and vegetable productions of New South Wales, New Zealand, and some of the Austral Islands. And in the preface to this, he said, quote, Unless the hand of man be stayed from their destruction, the ornithorhynchus and the echidna, the emu and the megapodius, like the dodo, moa, and notornis, will shortly exist only in the pages of the naturalist. The effort to find platypus eggs or pregnant platypuses continued for decades without clear success. Then, in 1864, two miners brought a female platypus to gold receiver George Rumby. Rumby reported that she laid two eggs while closed up in a gin crate, but he wasn't sure that this was normal for the platypus. He thought that the fear involved with being shut up in that gin crate may have caused her to essentially miscarry her eggs. In 1882, British biologist and embryologist Francis Maitland Balfour, known as Frank, suggested that William Hay Caldwell travel to Australia to study the egg question. Caldwell had graduated from Cambridge in 1880 and had been teaching comparative anatomy. Not long after Balfour made this suggestion, he died while mountain climbing in the Swiss Alps. A traveling student ship was named in his honor, and Caldwell became its first recipient. Caldwell used the money and prestige that came with this student ship, along with the backing of the Royal Society, to travel to Australia and to study several of its animals, including platypuses, echidnas, and lungfish. On August 29, 1884, after a four-month search assisted by Aboriginal people, Caldwell shot a female platypus. There was an egg nearby, one that was presumably hers. He also found an egg in the mouth of her uterus, which he described as being at a stage equal to a 36-hour chick. Caldwell reported his findings through a telegram that read, quote, monotremes oviparous ovum meroblastic. Meroblastic is a term used to describe an egg's cleavage after it's been fertilized. So in lay terms, this essentially said, monotremes lay eggs and their eggs contain lots of yolk. Caldwell's message was passed along to a professor he knew at Sydney University, and from there to the British Association for the Advancement of Science meeting that was convening in Montreal. And then just a day after Caldwell's find, William Hock, who was curator of the South Australian Museum, also found an eggshell in an echidna's pouch. That led to confirmation that echidnas also lay eggs. 
Hack presented his observation to the Royal Society of South Australia in Adelaide on the same day that Caldwell's discovery was announced at the British Association of the Advancement of Science meeting. Both those things happened on September 2nd, 1884. This finally conclusively answered the question of whether platypuses lay eggs. Yes, they do, and so do echidnas. Today, there are only five species of mammal known to lay eggs, which are platypuses and then four different species of echidna. All of them are native to the Australian continent and its surrounding islands, and from an evolutionary standpoint, it's likely that they split off from other mammals more than 200 million years ago. It was only after that point that other mammals evolved to give birth to live young. After his discovery of platypus eggs, Caldwell went on to do some incredibly destructive research into echidnas. He employed a huge team of Aboriginal people who captured and killed an estimated 1,200 to 1,400 echidna between July and August of 1885. Caldwell's writing suggests that at least some of these were being used for food, but he was definitely encouraging this by paying them half a crown for each female specimen that they brought to him. He also wrote about this Aboriginal crew in a really disparaging way, and he exploited them by raising the prices on the flour, sugar, and tea that he sold to them based on how much he had paid them for echidna specimens. So if you brought him more specimens, he would still sell you the same amount of tea or sugar or whatever, but at a higher price based on how much he had paid for those animals. What a gem. Uh, This research into the nature of the platypus had taken 95 years and an enormous amount of effort. In the words of George Bennett, quote, of all the Australian mammalia, none has excited so much attention as the platypus or water mole, both from its peculiar form and the great desire evinced to ascertain the habits and economy of so singular a creature. He went on to say, quote, perhaps no animal in its first introduction into Europe ever gave rise to greater doubts as to its classification or excited deeper interests among naturalists, an interest fully maintained to the present day, respecting its habits and economy, than this enigmatical creature, which from its external appearance as well as internal anatomy may correctly be described as forming a connecting link between the quadruped the bird, and the reptile. Bennett wrote that in 1860, but that part about, quote, an interest fully maintained to the present day is still true. There's still a ton of ongoing research into the platypus, including the discovery that the platypus has biofluorescent fur. That was announced in 2020. So as we noted, a lot of platypuses were killed during this research and also through hunting, habitat loss, and other factors in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Eventually, though, every Australian state passed conservation laws to protect the the platypus. The last of those laws went into effect in 1912. So today, platypuses are listed as near-threatened on the International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List of Threatened Species. Not the most upbeat place to land an episode. No, but I mean... (laughs) It's better than there being extinct. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, My point being, do you have upbeat listener mail to accompany this? I do have listener mail. I have listener mail that is about Australia. Um, (laughs) Something I didn't make the connection until just now because I had two different listener mails to go with two different episodes and I did not pay attention to which I put with which. So 
Uh, thanks, Renata, for this email that turned out to be super related to this episode. Uh, this says, uh, this was written back in August after an earlier Unearthed episode, and I flagged it to read on the show, and then I didn't read it. So Renata said, Dear Holly and Tracy, I hope this email finds you both well during these strange and unusual times. I've just caught up on the July Unearthed episodes as I usually listen to podcasts while I'm driving. But I'm in lockdown in Melbourne, Australia, and haven't really been going many places. I came across this interesting talk about archaeological digs taking place in Melbourne, and I thought it might be interesting for the edibles and potables section of the next Unearthed. Uh, I forgot to come back to it in time for the next Unearthed, so I'm reading it now. There's a big infrastructure project currently on the go, and as part of the excavations for a new train station, the Victorian government conducted archaeological digs on the site prior to commencing construction work. This particular site was right at the heart of early Melbourne, including a cottage owned by the man who founded the city, John Batman. Side note, Melbourne was almost called Batmania after him. One of the places they were excavating had been a general store in the 1850s, but suffered a catastrophic fire in 1855. The shop was destroyed, and much of the remains fell into the underground cellar, which was also full of stock. The fire was so destructive that they pretty much just covered over the cellar and built over the top. The excavations revealed a look at an 1850s grocery store, with everything in the cellar basically untouched since the night of the fire. This allowed insight into how grocery stores arranged their stock, and also what kinds of items they were stocking. Melbourne in the 1850s was a frontier town, having only been established 20 years prior, yet the shop was stocking a range of foods, including relatively exotic fruits, as well as luxury goods from England. The dig analysis included archaeobotanical research to determine the contents of pots and bottles, some of which still contained the burned remains of food and drinks. There was also remains of a cat, possibly kept in the store to catch mice that would otherwise spoil the goods. Uh, and then there was a link to the talk about all of this. Thank you for all the hard work that goes into researching and writing the shows. They're always interesting, even when it isn't a topic with which I'm familiar, which is lots. Haha. <laughs> Take care and stay safe, Renata. Thank you so much for this email. I'm sorry that I flagged it for follow-up and then didn't look at my follow-up flags for a very long time. Uh, and then thought I need to I need to make sure I haven't missed anything which I had so uh, thank you so much for this note and for telling us about these finds if you would like to send us a note we're at history podcast at iheartradio.com and we're all over social media at missed in history that's where you'll find our Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram and you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to get your podcasts Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.